if you can keep out, please, your, your Bibles or your phones with you to uh, follow along in, in Mark. We've been going through um, the Gospel of Mark, um, one of my favorite books from the Bible, and this series called The King's Reign. The King's Reign. And we see the, the Son of God, Jesus, and his, one of his favorite titles is actually the Son of Man. We're going to see that come up a lot, where he's fully God, fully man. True representation of the human race, where he succeeds everywhere that Adam failed. But then we also see that he is the full Son of God, fully God. And he is coming down to establish his reign here on earth. And we talked about last week, um, Jesus has four confrontations with religious leaders. We talked about man's religion versus the gospel. And now we're going to get to see how people reject Jesus through a few different ways. They reject him by being just fans, crowds, or a kind of pseudo-worship, false worship. They reject him through being skeptics, being skeptical of Jesus, or through familiarity. We're going to see that. Mark draws a contrast between being a faithful follower of Jesus and being a fan, a skeptic, or just family. But we're going to see at the end that, that Jesus, is, Jesus the King is truly worthy of worship. He's worthy of proclamation. He's worthy of honor. He's worthy of obedience. Let's dive right in there in verses 7 where we see a great crowd is gathering Jesus. And we're going to first look at, our first group we're going to look at is the crowds and the demons. The crowd and the demons, verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdraws with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. So we know he's up there still in the north, north of Israel, if you can picture the uh, geography in your map, in your, in your mind. Um, he's up in the Sea of Galilee, this, this large sea. And there are people that from everywhere, there are people from all these different parts of modern day Palestine and Israel, all these different parts, even from these pagan cities of Tyre and Sidon. So there's this large group, these gathering, these followers that are following Jesus and hanging out, seeking him. So when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, verse 8, they came to him. Notice, when the crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Now this could be a bad thing. This could be a neutral thing. This could be a good thing. I think probably what's going on here is people are hearing about all these power stories that we've been looking the last few weeks of all these casting out of demons, all these healings, and they're like, man, I want to see some too. I think that's probably what's going on here. Verse 9. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him and touched him. All right. Part of this sounds a little bit more like a Beatles concert rather than Jesus' teaching. 
or you could say maybe a One Direction concert, or um, what you could fill in the gap. Maybe your favorite band or something. They're pressing up against him in order to not, and he's worried that they're going to crush him. All right. Wow. They have a Jesus gets a boat ready so that he can get away so that so they don't trample him to death. All right. So I think that's important. I think that's important. I think we have right here a lot of people there are crowds. They're fans of Jesus. They want to just they want to see oh man, they want to see something cool happen. They're not necessarily wanting to see him because he's the son of God. They're not necessarily wanting to hear from him to hear the words of God. They do this because they said, all right, he had healed many. Verse 11, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and they cried out, you are the son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So I think we have to ask ourselves, and we'll continue to, to do this, to reflect, all right, am I, am I just a fan or am I a true follower? Am I a fan or a follower? Is Jesus nice just a, a fad, a fun trend? Maybe the church is like a, fun, a nice social club? To many students I know and families, when I was a, a youth pastor, I know over the years, it seemed like Jesus was just this. It seemed like Jesus was just another extracurricular sometimes. That uh, just like, all right, maybe just like the baseball team, if the baseball team gets too much, I'll just drop it. And so I see that. I see families that, all right, hey, we'll just, you know, our schedule's a little crowded on Sundays or on Wednesday or Friday for youth groups, so eh, we'll, just, we'll just drop it. We'll just drop it. Jesus can be just something you easily drop. Just something interesting. Verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. They cried out, you are the son of God. We've already talked about this before. How? Because then Jesus, right, he orders them strictly to be quiet. I remember reading this too um, in years past thinking, oh, why, why is Jesus saying that? I, th- I thought that'd be kind of good publicity. If our supernatural demons are saying, all right, he's the son of God. But these aren't true followers either. I think of James 2.19, it says, James is talking to uh, Christians, to the church, and it says, you believe that God is one. Great for you. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. He's like, all right, so demons have a belief of sort. <laughs> he says, too. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. But do they follow him? Do they love him? No. no. Yes, good. yes, good job, Hazel. They don't. And they're maybe trying to distract here. They're trying to maybe show their power. They have different motives we've talked about before. God hasn't changed the, de- the demons' lives. Right? They don't trust him as Savior. They don't love him and follow him as king. The demons aren't offering true worship. But the irony in the Gospel of Mark is this. is This, is, this isn't the, the first time that demons have called out, all right, he's the son of God. But not a single person has said that yet in Mark's Gospel. And throughout the Gospel, we'll see 
that it just seems to be a fact that people are not ready before the cross, before the cross, to see Jesus really as the Son of God. People just aren't. So we see these two, these two kinds of people. We see the crowds. We see the demons. The demons have a, a false kind of worship. It's not true worship. And the crowds, they're just fans. They're just fans of Jesus. But we see the true reality is that the king is worthy of worship. The king is worthy of worship. And that's some wonderful reflection that I think we can have in our lives. How am I worshiping the king? Do I really worship him? Is my heart overflowing with gratefulness? The demons aren't grateful. Are we, are we thankful for God even in difficult circumstances? When things don't go well for us. One thing that was convicting me, it was so good, our, our group on Wednesday was going over this. Uh, we talked about last week, man's religion, right, in the gospel, versus the gospel. And there's some great resources, actually, over here uh, by Tim Keller. If you guys want to grab that, I, I passed it out to some of the group on Wednesday. But it's so good. We were reading it, going over it on Wednesday, on what religion is versus the gospel. And one of them was really, I mean, they were all really convicting and so good. I'm going to read one to you on prayer. Prayer, it says this. Religion says this about prayer. It says, my prayer life consists largely of petition, asking God for things. And it only heats up when I am in time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of my environment. The gospel. The gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship, relationship with God. Right? Oh, man, that's so convicting. Do I just, most of my prayer life, is it just, God, do this for me, please. I have this emergency situation. Oh, Lord, I need this. Oh, help so-and-so. Or is it generous stretches of praise and adoration? Oh, that's really good. So we see the crowds. We see the demons. But that's not true worship there. Let's go to the next point. The apostles. We see the next group. We see the apostles. Or for us, we see the disciples. True followers of Jesus. Let's look at them. Verses 13 through 21. We see Jesus goes up on the mountain and he called to them, him those whom he desired. And they came to him. Man, isn't that how it happened in our lives? I wasn't looking for Jesus. <laughs> I wasn't looking for Jesus in, in my life. I was a rebel. But he called those whom he desires. Have you heard Christ's call? Have you heard? Do you know his desire for you? Be reminded of that. So they come to him. Jesus called and I answered, right? Verse 14, he appoints 12. So he appoints these, these specific, he had many disciples, right? Many people who were following him, like legitimately. But he appoints these special 12 who he sends out. They were called apostles. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. Right? Notice what their function was, to be with him and to send them out to preach. That's the same thing for us. That we're called to be with Jesus. We're called to be with Jesus. That's our first calling. I've gotten this, 
I talked about last week how I've gotten this mixed up sometimes. I'm just, man, doing all these things for God, right? God doesn't need you to do anything for him. He can make a, a donkey talk and preach the gospel to people, a jackass. He does that too in me. <laughs> he doesn't need us. That's the beautiful thing. He wants us to be with him, but he also does use us. He wants to use us. He might send them out to preach, and he uses us, broken people just like these guys, as we're about to see, to preach. To preach just means to tell, to proclaim, and the authority to cast out demons. So he appoints the 12. He appoints Simon, whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, the sons of thunder, and also Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. All right, so this is the ones who Jesus calls. These are the ones who Jesus calls. Wow, what an interesting group of people. All right, so we got some fishermen here. We got at least four fishermen. We got Simon, who he calls the rock. And I go back and forth on whether, like, all right, is this partly, like, a knock on Peter, too? And also, like, he's calling him up to become the rock that he would be of the church? Simon, who we know ends up disowning Jesus, right, who's weak, who still even later, years later, we know from Scripture, too, um, the Apostle Paul later has to rebuke Peter because Peter was being racist. He, wasn't, he was eating with only Jews and not all the Gentiles. And he has to rebuke him. He still doesn't get it years later, right? Just like all of us. Peter, who the one throughout the Gospels, and this Mark's Gospel is his perspective, is just always he says something, and it's like me sometimes, like, oh, I didn't mean to say that. Can I take those words back? And we get James and John here, the sons of thunder. And I'm inclined to think, I'm not the only one who thinks this, that he's kind of making fun of them when he calls them the sons of thunder. At one point, these people had rejected Jesus, and, uh, and James and John are like, hey, Jesus, Jesus, do you want us to call down fire on these people? <laughs> like, really? And so I think it's maybe even with that situation in mind that Jesus calls them the sons of thunder. All right, they make a lot of noise, but there's not a lot of substance to them. They're the sons of thunder. Thunder. But then they're just, yeah, they're a joke and laughable at times. They're the sons of thunder. We have Thomas, who ends up being um, the church uh, kind of, uh, let's see, I think harshly calls him doubting Thomas, right? Um, he's in there. We have Thaddeus that uh, other, other uh, gospels call him Judas. So that's, a, that's a, one of his other names, if you didn't recognize it. We have Simon, who is a zealot. And we have Matthew, who's a tax collector. And these guys are totally on the opposite side of the spectrum, way opposite side of the spectrum. Simon, the zealot, was a 
semi-political group that were basically terrorists. They said that, all right, we're occupied by the Romans and we shouldn't be occupied by the Romans. So I'm willing to do whatever it takes. I'll kill Romans, I'll start riots so that we wouldn't be oppressed by the Romans anymore. And then we have tax collector over here, Matthew, who sides with the Romans and who his own people despise and hate and who gets very rich on collecting taxes. I know we all love, you know, giving our taxes, you know, and he takes extra for himself and he's very rich and wealthy for it. How these two got along and didn't kill each other, I don't know. It says something about Jesus, right, and his ability to change us. So these are the group of people that there is. And then we, Judas, who we find out is a thief who's taken money out of the money bag and who ends up betraying Jesus. So these are the ones that Jesus calls to be his apostles. I hope you're encouraged. I know I am. God uses broken people like them and like me and you. And these are his followers. These are his followers. The king is worthy of proclamation. The king is worthy of proclamation. That's what we see here. He calls them to go out, to share the gospel, to proclaim. To proclaim. That's what he does. Barna Research has found that millennials, millennials, um, that's, that's part of my, my group, and 47% say they somewhat or strongly agree with this statement. It is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. What? But the rest of us aren't so much better. Um, Barna also says that paradoxically, the group that's the middle income, um, middle income that has the most personal responsibility they feel to evangelize. 76% of a middle income, maybe that's most of us, I don't know, um, have a responsibility, or adults, that we should share the gospel with others. But it's actually the least amount who actually, in real practice, do share the gospel, according to research. And actually, from 2010 till today, their outreach efforts have dropped from 51% share the gospel to 37%. So they're sharing, we're sharing the gospel less and less. I pray that we would think about this, that we'd, we'd reflect on this, that am I reminded of our calling as a Christian? Do I, am I looking to do this? And so it's, it's not meaning that any time we, we meet with someone, you know, we're just... Um, you know, banging them over the, the head with a Bible or with the four spiritual laws or something like that, just randomly. But it's a relationship. It's getting to know people. It's befriending our hairdresser. It's befriending the, the coffee shop barista that we see all the time. It's befriending our neighbors, inviting them over, taking out the trash for them, picking up, um, helping clean up the lawn helping uh, clean up, do fall cleanup for them. You know, it's, it's befriending people. And then, yes, it is also telling them about the love of Jesus. It's actually getting to that. Maybe reflect on your life this last year. How many people did I actually, was I able to sit down and maybe share the gospel with? 
Remember, this is our calling. An illustration that uh, has really um, always has stayed with me for many years. In college, I heard, um, and it's a fun, um, I heard a story of Pastor David Troy. Pastor David Troy, and um, actually he, he was someone who turned us on to hearing about Glendale Heights and church planting, which is very interesting. But Pastor David Troy, he, uh, he was going to the NBA All-Star Game in Las Vegas. This was years ago. He was going there, and uh, being a man of prayer, he asked people to pray that he would meet some famous people, that he would meet some of the All-Stars, especially, especially who that he would meet? Michael Jordan, of course. And so his church and his peoples were praying, and he was praying and seeking God about this. He was staying at the Bellagio, and it was Michael Jordan's birthday. He hears about this the last day that it's Michael Jordan, Jordan's birthday and that there was going to be a party that last night that Michael Jordan was hosting. He can believe his good luck. And so he's waiting around all day. He's eating out In-N-Out Burger for lunch and then he's having buffet every night so the chance that he could see someone famous, all right? He's kind of a funny guy like this. But he gets to be night, late at night, that, and he sees this guy, cock, his hat cocked down, and he's walking in. He's walking to this back room. He's like, that's Deion Sanders. It's Deion Sanders. He's got his hat down, but I know it's him. So he follows him back there, and then he goes into the bathroom. And then who should he see in the bathroom but Brian Erlacher? So he goes to the stall, and he goes and pees in the stall next to Brian Erlacher. All right? <laughs> in there, right? <laughs> He's claimed to fame, right? He meets, uh, he meets this guy. He's like, hey, how's it going? Hey, yeah. He's like, I'm a pastor. He's like, I'm a pastor too. No way. He's like, yeah, I know Michael Jordan. What? Yeah, I, the reason why I'm here is I'm Michael Jordan's buddy. I went to school with him. I went to high school with him. That's why he invited me here. He's like, no way. Can I, can I hang out with you? So he, he goes out of the bathroom and he starts to go into this, this back area and the security guards there, because they see his friend, who's Michael Jordan's friend, and he's butting up with him now. He's like, yeah, he's, he's my brother, you know? He's, <laughs> he goes through and the security guards part, no questions asked. All these guys walking in, he sees Dr. J walk in, he sees Terrell Owens, he's seeing all these, he sees Michael Jordan. And Michael Jordan says hi, hi to his friend, and, he's, and he shakes Michael Jordan's hand. He says, Michael, I'm a pastor too. Awesome, cool. He says, Michael Jordan, I'm, I've been praying for you, I'm praying for you. And he holds his hand, he says, thank you. And he's like, oh, Michael Jordan said thank you. And he goes back in, and right, he goes back out, and he sees the, the soonest guys that he's able to find, because he's got to share the good news. He sees these guys playing slots or whatever over here, gambling, and these, these two black guys in their 20s. And he says, he says, shake my hand. He says, right here, shake my hand. And he says, yes, my thank you. He's like, all right, all right. Shake my hand. Yeah, that's probably what that guy was thinking. He's like, shake my hand. All right, shake my hand. You just shook the hand of a man who shook the hand of Michael Jordan. And the guy's like, what? 
no way, no way. And he's starting to walk around and his friend is like, shake my hand too, man, shake my hand. And he, because he was so excited, because he had to share the good news of who he'd met. How much more is good news of who that we have met, that we've encountered? And that, yes, I know, that's probably a cheesy story. But how much greater is this man that we can know, this God that we can know intimately, who loved us and died for us? The king is worthy of proclamation. Number three, the skeptics. We see this in verses 20 through 33. And then he went home. Jesus goes home and the crowd gathers again. So they could not even eat. They could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. So I don't know about you, but I got some crazy family members. Right? You got two. And for Jesus' family, they're like, Jesus? That guy's a... Older brother Jesus. Little crazy. We don't know who exactly all this is, but we know Jesus at least has five brothers and he has some sisters. We know um, his oldest brother, it seems, is, uh, is James. The apostle ends up writing the book to James and becoming leader of the Jerusalem church. But he didn't believe in Jesus until after the resurrection, where it says that Jesus then appeared to James. We all know that one of his other brothers was Judas, or we get the book of Jude from, who wrote the book of Jude. It, these could be some of these brothers. We don't know for sure. It could be. We know at least that they didn't believe until later. <clears throat> Can't imagine growing up under the shadow of the Son of God. <laughs> but Jesus' family, even Mary, Mary, right? The Virgin Mary! Even, they think Jesus is out of his mind. It continues. They want to seize him, even, because they thought, all right, he's crazy. We've got to get him out of here. All these crowds are going out. This is crazy. Verse 22. The scribes came down from Jerusalem, were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. All right. So we know, they say this is from Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was the epicenter of religion, the Jewish face, right? So these are the, the head honchos, right? And we know that these are not the, the Sadducees. We'll talk more about this sometimes later. The Sadducees didn't believe in angels or demons. They didn't believe in the supernatural. Um, but the Pharisees, they did. So these are a delegation of the Pharisees. They come all the way out from Jerusalem, far up to the north. And now they're trying to gossip. They're trying to slander Jesus' name. He's possessed by Beelzebul, they say. Beelzebul, um, we're not sure. So these scribes, they say the word scribes. Scribes were, um, were those who, who wrote things, right? But they came to be used as they were basically the pastors, the theologians for the Jews of the day, right? They are the pastors, the theologians. And they say that he's that Beelzebul. This means that he's the devil. He's Satan. This came to be used as a euphemism at some point that for Satan. It might have originally been, I actually came across this uh, the other week, um, as the Philistine god of Ekron, the city of Ekron, there is a, if you look in, uh, I think it's 1 Kings, 
you'll find that they say Beelzebul as the Philistine god of Ekron. Anyway, interesting. And then he gives them these two stories, these two metaphors. Verses 23. And he called to them, and he said to them in parables, All right, you say, I'm possessed by the devil. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against Satan and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. So he gives them two metaphors. One of a kingdom that's in civil war. All right, if a kingdom is in civil war, they're going to be fighting against themselves. They're not going to be able to stand. They're not going to be strong, especially when another kingdom, the kingdom of God, is against it, which is not going to stand anyway. But that's beside the point. Or he says, all right, if you're, if you're breaking into a house and there's a strong man, a strong person who's defending his house, right? You've got to tie this guy up first to take and break into his house. So he's saying, all right, if I'm breaking into the devil's house and I'm casting out demons, which is what he was doing, then aren't I tying, haven't I tied up the strong man? So he's saying, all right, this doesn't make any sense. You're saying I'm casting out Satan, I'm taking down Satan's kingdom, and that's part of Satan's plan? He wants me to do that? It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. Not really thought out at all. And I think Jesus, though, is alluding to what he actually is doing here. He's defeating the enemy in enemy territory. He is conquering the kingdom of Satan. And in the cross, Jesus ultimately, he binds the strong man so that the devil can no longer damn the people of God. He can no longer condemn God's people. He can no longer accuse us. It signals the beginning of the end of his kingdom when Jesus raises from the dead. Verses 28 through 30. He continues to talk about what they're saying. And he has some very strong words for them. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So these are some strong words and also some words that have been unfortunately very misused and misunderstood throughout history. If one of you has ever wondered or is wondering now, all right, have I committed this sin? Have I committed this unforgivable sin? If you're probably, if you're wondering that, you probably have not. (laughs) This sin though is a rejection is a constant rejection of the voice conviction of the Spirit of Christ in your life. And it's Christ himself, Christ himself, God who knows their hearts, who says this to them. If someone has said this to you, don't believe it. 
That's your, it's between you and God. We, we focus on this one thing that he says instead of what? The, also what's in here, he says, every other sin will be forgiven. Every other sin will be forgiven. Man, and isn't that the good news of the gospel? Christ, no one is beyond redemption. No one. I says that he loves to save those that are lost. That whenever someone turns to him, whenever, whoever would believe, whoever would believe. So this is talking about people who have totally rejected Christ, who have totally rejected his forgiveness, believing in him. It's, it's a warning to not, um, to not quench the spirit uh, who's convicts, who brings conviction. In a shame and honor culture of this time in Israel, this would have been a tremendous insult on Jesus. That's why Jesus has such strong words. He's the Son of God, come to bring grace and mercy, and they're calling him the spawn of Satan. You see, the king is worthy of honor. And how do we show honor? How do we show honor as his followers? What does that mean for us? I think of the third commandment. It says, you shall not... Take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not uphold the guiltless who takes his name in vain. It's honoring God with our lives, with our words, with our deeds. Here's some practical ways that we can honor God. We can meet with him in prayer and study. And not, nor uh, should we save the least part of our day to do that. The leftover part of the day. Not think of it, oh, at the end of the day, oh, man, oh, God, I should, I should spend a few minutes with you. But no, to honor him, to honor him. We honor him, the, the Jews, um, throughout uh, their history, Jew, some Jews would, you had to bring sacrifices, right? Sacrifices to God. And they would take sacrifices that were lame. They were a lamb that only had three legs, a lamb or a sacrifice, animals that were, had some kind of deformity or issue. And we weren't supposed to do that, it talks about in the Bible. But to give God our best. Do we give God our best? Do we give God our best? Do we honor him? Do we honor him with our minds? Do we honor him with what we look at? Media. Film, TV shows, music? Or do we just fill our minds every night for hours every night with not things that are necessarily bad, maybe for some of us it is, but they're not God-honoring. They dull us to God, to His holiness. They just leave us numb, doing this for hours and hours maybe every day. One of the best ways that we can honor God is also is how we love our brothers and sisters. I love Augustine says it like this. He says, In the city of man, we love gold and we walk all over people. In the city of God, we walk on gold and we love people. We can also honor God with our lips. We can honor God with our lips. We can be quick to tear down others, we can be quick to complain. We can have a lot of negative talk, or we can be filled with thanksgiving, with praise, with encouragement for one another, with 
loving and affection for one another. And maybe some of us just need to stop swearing. Just, all right, let me just put that out of my life. The king is worthy of honor. (laughs) Number four, last point, we see the family. We see family. Verse 31 through 35. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside they sent to him and called him. His mother and his brothers, right? And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside. They're seeking you. Now remember, they thought he was crazy, right? They wanted to take away, kidnap him almost just to say, All right, let's get you out of here. They're outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. The king is worthy of obedience. The king is worthy of obedience. Many of his followers would have thought here, And this was big in their culture and important in the Bible. And for many of us, maybe we should take this more seriously. It says the sixth commandment says to honor your mother and father. To honor. So here's his mother. And they would have thought, all right, you need to honor your mother. But I think of this. I think of uh, another parable that Jesus said in Matthew 21. It tells about two sons. A man who has two sons. And he asks them, hey, son, please go and work in the vineyard. Go in the work in the vineyard today. And one son, he says, I will not. He answers, but later he changes his mind, and he does go and work in the vineyard. And then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. And he answers, I will, I will, sir. But then he did not go. Which of the two did what the father wanted? Jesus asked. He said, the first they wanted, right? So there was one who said, I'm not going to go, but then he does end up going. And then there was another one who said, yeah, I'm going to go. I'll work in the vineyard. But then he didn't go. One obeyed. One didn't. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show the way of righteousness, but you didn't believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. The sinners is all of us, right? We talked about it a couple weeks ago. All of us. Even, even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So Jesus is saying, true faith, true trust leads to following. It leads to obedience. So he's saying, all right, these are my brothers, my mothers, and my sisters. It's us, church. It's those who are following Christ, who seek to obey him. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother my sister and my mother. So yes, Jesus does need to honor his parents, and I believe he does. He's honoring God right now by preaching the gospel, which is why he had come, to preach the gospel. See, following Jesus is not always convenient. He's not always, it's not always convenient. We might say at times, be tempted like his family, to say, ah, oh, Jesus is a little crazy. He's a little radical. You know, he's really serious about this God thing. He expects your life to follow suit. He's king. 
And who are those who have close relationship with Jesus? He says, those who are my brother, my sisters, my mother, those who obey him, he says. I'm not talking about getting closer seats in heaven or something to Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. But those, if you walk in obedience with him, then you're going to be in close relationship with him. You're going to be close to him. It's those who obey the will of God. So this is Mark's point. He says, there are followers. These are my disciples. And they're a messed up group. But these are the ones who are following me. Follow me. And then there, there are those who are the fans. They're fans. They're the skeptics. Those who are family. They're just too familiar with me to recognize me as their Lord, as their God. And we see this in the crowds. We see this in the demons. We see this in the skeptics and their family. But we see the king is worthy of these four things. He's worthy of worship, of proclamation, of honor, of obedience. But we see people through their skepticism, through being fans, through their familiarity, they reject Jesus as king. And I want us to reflect, because it could be really easy right now to say, oh yeah, I'm the follower. I'm a follower. Real easy for me too. But all right, where are the parts in my heart or in my life where I look more like a fan? Where I look maybe more like a skeptic? Where I'm too familiar? Let's look at these really quick as we close. Number one, the fan, the crowds. In America, it can be very comfortable to be a Christian. And we can approach Jesus as being very consumeristic. We come to church on a Sunday, and even if, and then we might leave right out, right after. And then maybe that's it. That's what church life maybe looks like. That's what maybe even our faith or our religion looks like. But instead, am I looking to get to know people? My brothers and sisters. He says, these are my brothers and sisters. Man, I want to get to know the brothers and sisters of Jesus. I want to get to know you guys better. Man, I am so blessed by you guys. And most of you, I want to say, man, I'm so encouraged to be in this relationship with you, to be part of this church, that you guys are brothers and sisters in Christ. That is an amazing thing. And I'm so built up and encouraged by you. And I speak for Chelsea, too, by you guys encouraged by your faith. And you guys are here and you're sacrificing, you're helping set up and tear down, and you're involved in wanting to get to know each other better. And there are also the demons in here. I'm not calling anyone a demon. <laughs> but there's, they have this pseudo kind of worship, where is maybe for some Christians, where they can maybe say, Oh, this is the statement of faith. These are the creeds. They can say it. They can have head knowledge about Jesus, maybe. But their lives actually don't live that out. Number two, there's the skeptic. There's the skeptics. Maybe, for some of us, we don't really treat the Bible like it's fully authoritative in our life. Maybe we're saying, Ah, you know... I'll believe, take most of that, but there's a few things in my life, Jesus, uh, don't touch those. Don't touch those. Maybe Jesus has said something that he offends us. Man, I don't know why that's in the Bible, Jesus. And so we demonize him. We hold him at an arm's distance so we really don't get to know him. Because, oh man, there's this one thing in the Bible 
so I'm just going to keep it away. Instead of, if we don't understand something, Jesus, he is open to our doubts. Just like he was with doubting Thomas we talked about. Jesus says, here, come here, see my scars. Place your hand in my side. Jesus welcomes us who doubt to further exploration and to know the truth, to further know him. Thirdly, family. family. Maybe as we're getting to, into church, maybe from many of us, like myself, that we can become so familiar with coming to church, with churchy, churchianity. Familiarity, it says, breeds contempt. Familiarity breeds contempt. We can get in the same routine of just going to church every day, doing this and that. Jesus is maybe just that crazy old uncle, though, like he was for these. I mean, you can't really take all that he says literally. I mean, he says some pretty crazy things out there. Am I really supposed to do that? Some of the things that Jesus says are pretty out there. You can treat him as just being really familiar instead of that he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of the universe. He knows best. And the reality is, for all of us, I'm pointing a huge figure at myself here, that we're far from being a perfect follower of Christ. Like his followers, like the 12 apostles. The harsh truth is that even our sins of yesterday are a rejection of Jesus' kinship over us. I know I didn't treat Jesus yesterday or let alone this morning as really king over my life and obey him completely and fully from the heart no nope, not at all and that each rejection that I have of Christ is an infinite punishment against a supremely good and kind king but man this is the good news of the gospel is that Jesus was a perfect follower for us Jesus followed God perfectly he worshipped his father perfectly. He honored him completely. He came and proclaimed and preached the good news to us. He was the missionary from heaven. He heals us. He always give God the honor and glory that he deserved. Every second of his life, he never uttered a blasphemy against God or anything to rightly condemn him. He honored and loved the Holy Spirit. And he had perfect and complete obedience to the Father, even to the cross. Let us look to that and be changed by his perfect following in our place and live everything, leave everything behind. Let's pray.